0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Midtown. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the Messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled Rumors of the Messiah, where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing for, from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we asked that your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, would be present among us, that we would know your son Jesus better. We pray that our eyes would be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which we are called. Father, I pray that your word would be present among us the incarnate Jesus, would open our eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to hear by the power of your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jesse, and I'm a new pastor here at Sojourn Midtown. I'm the pastor of Sending. And this is my first time preaching up here. So, Thanks. It's a joy and a privilege to be a pastor here at Midtown, and it's especially exciting to get to preach my first sermon this morning on the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is one of my favorite seasons of the whole year. I love being here and getting to celebrate with you. I'm particularly excited, too, because as we start this new series, it's called Rumors of the Messiah, From now until Christmas, we will look at various Old Testament passages regarding the person and work of that Messiah. We will consider key messianic prophecies and how the life of Jesus fulfills the promises of God. The following three sermons will examine the life, the suffering, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the final sermon in this series will end with God's promise of the final restoration. So as I mentioned, I love this Advent season. One of the things our family missed the most over the past seven and a half years as we lived in Lyon, France, as sent ones, was Advent. It's not that we didn't really enjoy our time in Lyon or the the opportunities we had to celebrate Advent with our brothers and sisters there in the church plant, but there's something really special about being in your home culture and getting to celebrate with family. And you know, a lot of these longings that we had that we still have, we're excited about the opportunity to slow down during this month, to reflect, and to celebrate big. And these sorts of longings that I have for my family, that we have as a husband and wife, my wife Ashley over there, we also as pastors have for you as a church. I want to share three kind of longings or burdens that we have for you, church. First of all, take the time to slow down this month. Living in another country can be really eye-opening when you return to the home culture that you're from. One of the ways, one of the things I've been wrestling with the past couple months, as my family and I have returned from Lyon, is this idea that you all don't stop. You're constantly busy. And I get it, I understand why. Our culture, this culture in the US, tells us that we have to fill our lives full. Our schedules need to be completely full or else we're not doing a good job. We're not being efficient with our time, right? But when we do this, we miss opportunities. So what I want you to, to encourage you with is the, this temptation to pull you in. Fight back. Take the time to slow down this month. Create space and margin so that you can see how God is working in your life. And this is... This idea of reflection is the second burden. Reflect on who Jesus, the Messiah is. As you take time to slow down, reflect on who Christ is. He is our Savior. Remember that our Savior came to earth to call people to himself, out of darkness, into light. In the midst of your sufferings, your pain potentially, blessings, things that you're you're enjoying in life. Remember, Jesus is present with you. Finally, the third thing, celebrate big. This season is really a great opportunity to do that. As you take the time to slow down and reflect, there's this beautiful time to celebrate, to feast big. And why can we do that? We can do that because the gospel is true. We believe that the gospel is good news for each of us. That is worth celebrating. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. We don't have to follow these desires of the flesh that tell us that these gifts or the things we chase after are going to satisfy us. We can celebrate big at Christmas because we have been redeemed to walk in newness of life. This good news, again, it's worth celebrating. So do it. Celebrate big this month. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt completely hopeless, completely lost? We moved to France in 2014 to be sent ones there, but the problem was I couldn't speak any French. I felt pretty hopeless and lost at this moment. For the first few months and the first few years even, uh, it was one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had in my entire life. I felt super fragile, Really frustrated at times. So we had moved there to share the gospel with people who needed to hear the gospel who would never hear it, and we wanted to see churches planted. But I didn't even know how to ask someone where the bathroom is. That's really humbling. I don't know if any of you have ever been in an experience where you've been outside of your culture and you have no way to communicate even super basic things like that, right? That's so hard. So When you have to constantly rely on others, that's a humbling experience. But even after a few years when I could speak French kind of well, I started getting the opportunity to preach in our church plant. And it was a really big privilege for me. um, But one of those things that I was able to do, I was able to use our three bilingual kids who spoke really good French to help me prepare. So I would practice with them, which is a beautiful thing and also again, really humbling. Why? Because they're bilingual. They speak better French than I would ever speak. Their accent was perfect. Mine was never gonna be perfect. No matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did, they were gonna mercilessly mock me. I love my kids, but that's the reality when when they're bilingual and they hear me talking in French, that sounds pretty bad. So they would say, dad, that's not how that goes. You can't say that like that. Um, one instance in particular that I really struggled with, there's these two words in French. Lo- uh, love and death. And in my ears, they sound like the same word. They're very hard to make th- them sound different. But the idea was, uh, you know, when you're talking about love and death, if you mix those up in a sermon, that can be kind of uh, costly, right? It's kind of a dangerous one. Love, death. If you you say the wrong thing, people are going to give you funny looks. Um, So again, this, this whole time in France was full of joy, but it was also super humbling because over and over and over again, I felt kind of hopeless when it came to learning language. No matter how much I tried, it felt like I was never going to make progress. And as humans... We can often find ourselves in these situations and seasons. God can feel distant, and we can doubt whether we are ever going to make any progress in this life. Life can seem dark and hopeless. For some of you, as you heard the scripture read this morning from Genesis 3, this might seem like a kind of bizarre passage as we start Advent. Why would we start here? I want to remind you that in this one of the darkest moments in all of human history, that God was in the midst of it. Our creator God didn't abandon us in our hopeless state. Far from it. He did the exact opposite. God blessed in the midst of these curses, graciously and abundantly. God pronounced divine judgment, but as we will see, God's posture to humanity was one of abundant grace. Early on in church history, the church fathers recognized what was going on here. In Genesis 3.15, they called this verse the proto-evangelium. It's a big sounding word, but what does it mean? It means it was the first gospel promise, the first good news that we have in scripture. This is the first messianic prophecy. Salvation begins in the context of a curse. But on this dark day, we were left with the hope of a victorious promised seed. This is good news. There is good news. Evil will not have the final say. In the course of redemptive history, we've now moved into the second act. We have the fall, but now we're moving on into the third act, thinking about redemption. And that brings hope. We're not left at the fall. In Genesis 3, 8, 9, God came asking Adam and Eve questions as a way to invite them to repent, probably. But because they chose to hide and to blame shift, God delir- delivered this series of curses. This idea of curse, though, it's really powerful, really weighty language. When the Bible uses this word, what is it talking about? Let me read this definition to you. In the Bible, to curse means to invoke God's judgment on someone, usually for some particular offense, What is striking here is that God himself is pronouncing the curse. It's effectiveness thus completely guaranteed. As we heard in last week's message from TPJ, the curse is directly made at the serpent. But that is not the case with the man and the woman. Instead, things are cursed because of them. God's judgment comes on childbirth, comes on work, comes on the earth itself. But it wasn't on them directly. Humanity is not left without hope. In this story, we begin to see God's redemptive plan for us. In the fall, in the aftermath with the curse, we see God's promised blessing through the offspring or the seed of the woman. Out of the curse comes a promised battle, but also a promised victory through the offspring of the woman. So here are the two promises in this verse that are going to shape our time together this morning. First of all, the promised battle. We'll see this idea of hostility. We'll dive into that in just a second. But then secondly, the promised victory. And there's these two words in Genesis 3.15, offspring and strike. And we're going to dive into what those mean. So first of all, the promised battle. Let's read Genesis 3.15 again. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I will st- he will strike your head and you will. Will strike his heel. So God promises that there's gonna be hostility. When we see God using this word, hostility, by directing the curse of the serpent, we need to understand that this isn't some little skirmish. This isn't a little battle that's just gonna be over quickly. When this word is used in this passage and other Old Testament passages, what the context is trying to tell us, the force of this word is meant to betray a long, long lasting battle. It is something that's going to be ongoing and perpetual. But this promised battle isn't just between God and the serpent, right? One theologian puts the hostility in these terms. The imperfect verb is iterative, it implies repeated attacks by both sides to injure the other. It declares lifelong mutual hostility between mankind and the serpent race. Once admitted that the serpent symbolizes sin, death, and the power of evil, it becomes much more likely that the curse envisages a long struggle between good and evil. So this idea of hostility, maybe it doesn't have the weight it should for us. I know for me, as I was struggling with this idea, I was trying to think, what, what really is this, does this mean, hostility? How do I get this idea that's really clear from the text? So um, one image that came to mind as I was wrestling with this is the idea of trench warfare from World War I. If we spend any time together, uh, as I get to know many of you over the next coming weeks and months, um, you'll probably recognize one thing pretty quickly. I love history. I'm kind of a history nerd. Um, one of the things particularly about history that I like, that I've, I've been reading books about war, thanks to my dad, uh, about all sorts of war, strategy, things, the beautiful things that happen in war, also the, the ugliness that happens in war, but I, I really... Am fascinated by what happens during war. So I also love war movies. And a few years ago, the movie 1917 came out. I don't know if some of you have seen that, but it's definitely worth seeing in a theater if you're going to watch that movie, um, because it's so beautifully shot. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Um, One of the incredible things that the director Sam Mendes did was to shoot many of the scenes in the movie in one long continuous shot, instead of taking a bunch of camera angles and editing all together like most films do. So early on in the movie, the two main characters that you can see there, they're huddled together. Um, They are tasked with a mission to deliver a letter from the general. Everyone and everything is caked in mud though because as we see the mission unfold, we see them walking through the trenches. So we get an idea of the ugliness of trench warfare. There are dead bodies and filth everywhere. These soldiers have been in the same place for months and months on end and they haven't been able to, to move forward. They've been stuck. When we read about hostility in this verse, this is the sort of image that needs to come to mind for us. This, this image of trench warfare, it is ugly. It's long. It's hard. It can seem like there's no progress being made. But the good news is, Is that there's a difference between what we see here from World War I and what we see in Genesis 3. There's a difference. In this long, seemingly never ending battle, the sides are not even. In the midst of this dark moment when God is cursing the serpent and childbearing and work, God is also planting seeds of hope. God, the creator of the universe, is on the side of the man and the woman. So guess what that means? It's not a fair fight. Think about that. God, the creator, is on the side of the man and the woman. There's also something else that's important to understand. This battle is not a negative thing. Instead, we need to look at what's going on here, this hostility, as God intends it. God created this hostility to drive a a wedge between humanity and the serpent. It's a good thing. It is because of this hostility that in Christ, we have the power to hate sin. And it is God's grace at work when sin makes us miserable. Let me say that one more time for you because it's really important to understand that. It is because of this hostility that in Christ, we have the power to hate sin. And it is God's grace at work when sin makes us miserable. This is a gift from God in the midst of a curse. It's not a negative thing. We typically look at the hostility, though, this this idea of enmity that's in some translations. We think of it in a negative light. I want to read a quote that I really deeply appreciate that helps explain this idea for us. The signs of spiritual warfare within us are the very evidence of life and grace. Sometimes we look at our internal struggles against sin as a mark that we are lost. But what Satan would like us, that's what Satan would like us to think. But the very warfare between sin and the flesh, which is in us, is a mark that we are alive spiritually. This is a result of the divine enmity that the Lord has planted in us. Hear that. If this hostility is God-given though, why does it feel like spiritual warfare doesn't really exist? That's so often the state for us, right? Right? it's so often difficult to recognize that there's a battle happening. It's crucial to remember one basic truth about life after the fall. The hostility is real and Satan is active. But the problem is we're too busy, we're too dulled to see that there's spiritual warfare taking place. Um, One of the things I really love about literature is that it helps bring to life things that sometimes we have a hard time getting our minds wrapped around. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters? Okay, quite a few of you. So this reference will probably make sense to some of you, but if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Um, In this classic satire, Lewis gives us a picture in his spiritual warfare, but from the vantage point of Screwtape, who's a senior demon, he is writing letters of advice to his nephew on how to attempt and destroy a man's soul. What is so striking is how Lewis portrays this struggle, but from an evil perspective. He says, How disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even humans can believe that he is going to live forever. This ties into what I was saying about one of our burdens for this series. What Lewis is helping us to understand is that because we are so distracted, we're so busy, our lives are so full, we're dulled to the reality of this battle. We're living under this contented worldliness. We're being pulled in and we're following what Satan desires. He wants nothing more than us to be contented by the world, what all the world offers. This pulls us away from remembering who God is and who God has made us to be. That brings us to our second point this morning, the promised victory. Remember that out of a promised battle comes a promised victory, and that will happen through the offspring of the woman. As we've already seen, this battle with all of its hostility, it's not going to end in the garden. It is perpetual and we see the hostility at play throughout the Old Testament. Let's read Genesis 3.15 once again. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. As we think about this word offspring, I want to take a moment to look at just how crafty and devious the serpent is. But also you can't miss this. Our God, who is the creator, is powerful and his purposes will not be thwarted. God cannot be stopped. Satan's desire was to use the woman to bring the downfall of the human race. What God did instead was to make the woman an integral part of salvation history. And he did it in a way that Satan couldn't ignore. When we look back at the Old Testament with this lens of this epic battle going on, and when I say epic, that word gets overused a lot in today's culture, right? Everything's epic. But let me tell you, in this context... There's no fitter word. Epic. That's what's happening. There is an epic, epic battle. We can see that from the line of the woman came many offspring that would one day lead to Jesus. We can trace the battle that took place between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. Between those who desire to do good and those who would do evil. Those who would follow and rebel against God and follow Satan. And those who would choose to be the people of the promise who would follow God in faith and hope. So first, Genesis 4, what happens? It's the chapter right after Genesis 3 here. Eve has Cain and Abel. But what happens to her boys? Cain murdered Abel. Satan was already at work trying to disrupt God's redemptive plan for humanity. It's clear here that Cain chose to rebel and follow He was an offspring of Satan because he chose to rebel against God. After that first murder took place, though, what happens next? Seth was born. He would follow God and become part of the promised offspring in this line that we follow through. If we jump ahead to Genesis 6, it's the story of Noah. What do we see in Genesis 6? We see Noah being the only one who was walking in faith. Everyone else in all the earth had already succumbed to Satan's schemes. So, in this epic battle, God acted in the flood. Again, God works in the course of salvation history to thwart Satan's schemes. Again, think with me. Jumping ahead to Exodus, Exodus one and two. What's going on in Exodus one and two? Pharaoh was being a tool, became a tool of Satan. Satan was at work through Pharaoh. Pharaoh ordered the murder of all the Israelite boys. Satan must have finally been thinking, I've got it. I'm finally going to win. This is it. All these boys are going to be murdered. But guess what happened? Exodus 1:17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Out of God's action, Moses was born. He was a God follower in the same line, the same offspring of the seed of the woman. These Old Testament examples, if you go throughout the Old Testament with this lens, this filter, thinking about this epic battle going on, you can see this battle between Satan and God played out over and over again. Every time Satan desired to end God's plan, he was thwarted. When we zoom out from these Old Testament moments and look forward in redemptive history, We understand Jesus' life in its rightful context. The promise culminates in Christ, the divine son of God who incarnated as a woman, who incarnated as a descendant of the woman. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promised offspring. He is the seed of the woman. And he will bring the promised strike that will provide lasting victory over Satan. So strike. This verse begins in this epic battle, and it doesn't And until the end of time. But the good news is that the outcome has already been fully decided. The victory has already been won. There's no question here. We can be confident in this. How many of you all are fans of trash talking? Does anyone like trash talking? All right, a few of you. We see trash talking happen a lot in sports, right? The sports world is full of trash talkers. But what are kind of the marks of a good trash talker? Somebody who can say big things, but can back it up, right? Somebody who can make grandiose claims with bravado, but then they show up in big moments. So in the sports world, I think about a, uh, an example from a long time ago, but Babe Ruth, right? He was famous for calling his shot. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit a home run. And then he did it. That's a pretty big deal. More recently in my favorite sport, the NBA with basketball, Think about Trey Young, right? If y'all watched the playoffs last year, you saw him taking a bow. And what did he do before that? The whole series with the New York Knicks, he was destroying them. They could not stop him. He just continued to trash talk all of their players, their whole team, the whole city of New York. And then when they won, he took a bow. That's some pretty big trash talking, right? And then another guy, Steph Curry. He's been destroying the league for a really long time now, but this year he's taking it up a notch. He's shooting no-look threes. That's ridiculous. That's some serious trash talking. But what we see here in Genesis 3 isn't even comparable because while this is some pretty big trash talking and high-leverage moments that we see in the world of sports, what God, the creator of the universe, did far surpasses anything we see in sports what did he do? God dunked all over Satan. He destroyed him. You know why? This was the most epic trash talking in all of the world, in all of history. How do, we, how do we know this? How do we know that God dunked all over Satan? God told Satan exactly what he was going to do, and then he did it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is good news. Our God dunked all over Satan. No matter how crafty and cunning Satan is, he couldn't do anything. He knew what God's plan was, and he tried as hard as he could, but he didn't thwart God's plan. His promises were not stopped. So let's return to salvation history in the life of Jesus. After Jesus was born, we had this story about King Herod. He was threatened. He became a tool of Satan. We see in Matthew 2 that Herod ordered the murder of all boys who were two years old and younger around the city of Bethlehem. But God had already preempted Satan's plan. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus' father, and they escaped to Egypt. Then, jump with me ahead in Jesus' life to the start of his public ministry. When Jesus was tempted, Satan is at it once again. Even at the very last moment in Jesus' life, almost to the end, Satan is trying to derail salvation history. In Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus, but he fails. Jesus chooses to follow the way of his father instead of rebelling. Then, at the very end, in Jesus' death, we see the fulfillment of the curse in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the promised seed, but that promise comes with a cost. Remember Jesus 3.15. You, Satan, will strike his, Jesus' heel. On the cross, it looked as though Satan had finally won. After all this time, Satan had finally accomplished what he had started in the garden. The physical world even knew just how incredibly dark and horrific what was taking place was going on. There was an earthquake. The sky turned dark. The earth knew that this was ugly and horrific. And you know what? Oftentimes in this hostility, in this battle that's taking place, this strike that Satan had on Jesus, we experienced the same thing. We experienced this darkness. Whether this week we saw refugees drowning in the English Channel or maybe you've walked with someone who's died of cancer. These are dark moments. These are reminders that Satan is at work. But remember the last part of Genesis 3.15, he, Jesus, will strike your head, Satan. Instead of this moment being a final defeat, this was actually the fulfillment of all of salvation history satan had failed to see that in christ's death and resurrection he took on the curse for all humanity and secured the victory hear that galatians 3:13 shows us this very thing christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us cursed becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The only person in all of human history who did, did not deserve to be cursed was cursed for us. Let that sink in. Take that in for a moment. That is a weighty thing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us. As I wrap things up this morning, I wanna remind us of the two promises again from Genesis 3.15, what are we promised? We are promised that there will be a battle, but this battle should give us hope because it reminds us God has not abandoned us. The hostility that we are experiencing in this life is a sign of the grace of God. God has not left us alone in our sin, and in our shame, and in our guilt. How do we know this? Romans 5, 6 through 8 reminds us of this gospel truth. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for just a a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those who were cursed... We can have hope because we are promised victory in Christ. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Joy to the World. I especially love verse three. Let me read it for you. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Christ's victory over sin is, just, is declared to extend far as the curse is found. If you are in Christ, you are a participant in this victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. Part of my role here as the pastor of sending is to shepherd our sent ones. For these men and women and children, the last 18 months has been Have been pretty hard. I want you to think about that with me for a second. Put put yourselves in their shoes. Because of COVID, almost all of their plans have been upended and turned around. Things that they had thought they could do, places they thought they could be, the home country that they now call home, they've not been able to return to often. I just want you to imagine that for a second. That's a super frustrating experience. So I want to say something specifically to our sent ones, either here this morning or maybe you're listening. Um, Lean into the victory that you have in Christ. Let that beautiful truth sink in deep. Christ has not forgotten you, friends. Christ is with you. He is present. I also want to say a word for the rest of you. If you know any of our sent ones here this morning, if you see them around today or this week, take advantage of the opportunity to encourage them, bless them, let them know that you're praying for them. Help them to understand that our church is behind them. Our church loves them. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus to the fullest and farthest extent possible. I love that prayer from Paul in Ephesians 1. We are in Christ And we are a new creation. And we get to participate in the fullness of Christ and those spiritual blessings that are available to us. So what do we do with these promises? As I wrestled with this text over the past few weeks, I was asking myself that question. Lord, how do we, how do I put this into practice? How do we as a body put Genesis 3.15 into practice? So out of that wrestling, I have a couple things I want you to consider. First of all, pray. You can ask God to experience the abundant blessing and grace you have received in Christ as adopted children of God. You can make this a regular part of your interaction with God over this coming month. Cry out to him. Ask him to help you to taste and see his goodness in your life. Also, in preparation, as a way to apply it in a second way, this passage I want to ask you to ask God to burden you with someone specifically who needs to hear this message of hope. Who in your life needs to hear this good news? So that's the second way. Testify. Out of this experience of God's grace in your life, testify to the hope and grace you have experienced in Christ. This good news is meant to be shared. This is an aspect of what it means to live out our identity here at Midtown as a sent one. As we go out into the world, testify to God's goodness in your life. When was the last time you shared about how God's blessings have impacted you? During this Advent season, for many of us, we'll have some out-of-the-ordinary opportunities to be around people maybe we don't or in situations that we're not normally. Maybe at a Christmas party or maybe as you're celebrating with your family and friends. I want to encourage you redeem this season of Advent. But that can be hard, right? Sharing the gospel is not easy. I can relate. I lived seven and a half years overseas. My primary job was to share the gospel, but I want to challenge you. I know it's not hard. It's not easy. It doesn't always come easy. It can be scary, but I want to encourage you that it's worth worth it. Maybe you don't want to say the wrong thing, Maybe the person that you have in mind is the Spirit brings someone to mind to you this morning. Maybe they're angry at God, or maybe they're angry at the church. But one of the beautiful aspects about testimony, about getting the opportunity to testify, is that it's your story. You don't have to memorize some long explanation of the gospel, some complicated presentation, because it's your story. So consider how is God impacting your life? What is God doing in you? And then take that opportunity and share with those around you about what God's doing. Again, redeem this Advent season. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.